one key piece of intel about Hocus Pocus is that if you just watch Sarah Jessica Parker, you're watching an entirely different movie. She's like on her own planet doing weird stuff in every shot of the mm. movie. She's just, she tonally, she is so different and it is the funniest thing I have ever seen. It's her greatest performance. <laughs> Good morning and welcome to Taking Ship, a guided cruise through the dumbest timeline in America. I'm Maggie Moore and I'm joined by Frank Spring, who clearly likes me, as well as you, dear listener, way more than Ellie Jacobs does because Frank is here and Ellie is not. Ellie is a hard man to please and uh, and we should give up trying. Uh, so friends, uh, please rate us. Uh, please send us your adoring letters and your hate missives, especially your hate missives. They nourish us. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter uh, at Taking Ship. Uh, and uh, that's ship with a P, as in uh, plurality. Uh, you can follow Mags at, at uh, MaggieM012. You can follow Ellie and send him hate missives at, at Ellie Jacobs. Uh, you can follow me at, at Frank Spring. Um, you know, bring the heat. Only the hottest takes, please. None of this weak-ass shit. Nothing lukewarm. We want your hottest takes. We want them here. We want them now. Cold uh, takes need not apply. Cold takes. Cold, weak takes need... It's like coffee, man. Cold, weak takes need not apply. We want them, you know, we want them as hot and strong uh, as a really fine espresso. Okay. We are pleased to be joined this week uh, by Charlie Bonner. Charlie is a contributor to Progress Texas. He's a recent graduate of the University of Texas. And if you've done democratic politics in uh, the Lone Star State, you've probably met Charlie. If not, you should say hello. So before we get into the interview with Charlie, we want to talk a little bit about why we are bringing him on now. Uh, and it's the short answer to it is we're bringing on Charlie because Larry Summers fucked up. In now, a shocking turn of events. In a shocking turn of events. I know exactly. Contain your surprise. Gambling going on in this establishment. <laughs> I'm shocked, sir. Shocked to discover that Larry Summers shit the bed. So, all right. That's not entirely. We've been wanting to bring Charlie on for a while. Charlie's senior project uh, at uh, at Texas was uh, essentially to t- to go forth into America. Uh, he wrote a terrific uh, blog series called "A Republic If You Can Jeep It." Uh, yes, uh, it is a one of my uh, a, 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 a paraphrase of one of my favorite Benjamin Franklin remarks. Uh, yes, he went forth and essentially he went to do a you know a kind of a personal journey and taxonomic study of different regions in America just driving around and talking to people about politics and their lives. This is part of a, a long literary tradition, and it's part of a pretty mixed literary tradition. Uh, and that includes, uh, and, and it's, it's one that when done badly is as bad as any piece of literature, as bad as anything out there. Uh, the Great American Journey Done Badly is really pretty ugly. Uh, and that is what we got uh, from uh, Larry Summers. Uh, in fact, earlier this week, uh, in, pieces, uh, in a piece that was published in the Financial Times and also uh, in the Washington Post and probably some other places to their everlasting shame, uh, Larry Summers announces in a short piece that he too took to the country uh, to explore it and he has some findings, right? This is your, and we're, we're gonna talk about this, this literary tradition here uh, with uh, with Charlie in greater detail during the interview, but basically, there are pieces of writing about traveling through America and talking to people that are, 
either genuine taxonomies, the first and most famous is, uh, is democracy in America, uh, or that are real personal journeys, or there, and then there are also what have been, what have come to be called Cletus safaris, <laughs> wherein people from one of the, uh, one, you know, one of the coasts, uh, usually the East Coast, uh, go forth into the hinterland to look at the common people and report back on them. It's the sort of, you know, the difference between uh, doing a, a well-intentioned journey or a well-intentioned study and just treating, pe- just treating, you know, Americans who live between the coasts as if they're exhibits in a goddamn zoo. So see if you can guess which one Larry Summers did. So Larry Summers goes forth um, uh, we drove for two weeks on two-lane roads from Chicago to Portland, Oregon, across the Great Plains and the Rocky Mountains. The larger cities we passed through included Dubuque, Iowa, Cody, Wyoming, and Bozeman, Montana. First, that sounds like a pretty awesome drive, actually. Uh, let me see here. Driving across America, this is Larry Summers still, as opposed to looking down from a plane, makes clear how much of this vast country is uninhabited. Yes, friends, the first observation yeah. that Larry Summers hands off to us from his time is that this place is really big and a lot of it we're not living in. Also, you just know, from it's a writing perspective, those like those couple sentences basically just sounds like he plagiarized America the Beautiful. Right, right. Like this directly is like, lifted lyrics and was like, aha, Pebble Mountain's majesty. <laughs> exactly. Amber waves of grain. We're going right. to punch this up a little bit. And God. Hoist it off on the unexpected, on the unsuspecting rubes at the Washington Post. Exactly. Much of the land we saw not only was uninhabited, but also seemed to be put to little economic use. Valleys too arid to farm or even to support ranching. Mountain ranges too rugged to support year-round economy. Things that we have known for as long as anyone has seen any of this country, including uh, including the very first peoples here who were like, there's probably not a lot we can do with a lot of this place. Exactly. Like, Native people had it down. They were like, no, yeah. maybe not here. Move it along. Yeah. We drove past some romantic ghost towns, but more abandoned cafes, gas stations, and hotels. Okay. So, you know, I mean, not all of America has, like, again, great, uh, awesome, terrific stuff as always, Larry. Let's keep going. Uh, let's see here. Uh, every attraction we visited had enough parking spaces for 10 times the number of visitors it enjoyed. America, we got space. Uh, we had our choice of metered spaces on main streets from Dubuque to Keystone, San Diego, where, or so Keystone, South Dakota, excuse me, where we stopped when we stopped for lunch. Okay, again, awesome, terrific. Now we're really getting into it, though. We were also struck by how remote the concerns of the coasts seemed. Televisions and bars and restaurants were rarely tuned to news channels. No one seemed terribly concerned with the controversies over then-Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. We saw 15 road signs opposing abortion for every other kind of political sign. What? You know, newsflash, people... I guess the lesson here is that people are living their lives. And also, incidentally... This that phenomenon, like the idea that like people on the coasts really care about Brett Kavanaugh, but people off the coasts don't. This is this actually is the kind of, is the whole fallacy here in a nutshell. Because I think that if you actually go into people, you go into most communities on the East Coast, you will also find a lot of people who are also just trying to get on with their lives. And if you actually dug into the conversations people off the coasts were having, like not necessarily putting up billboards about Brett Kavanaugh. But like, if you actually get into personal conversations, like people are aware, like the data is very clear on this. People off the coast have opinions about what was happening too. They just may not have been talking about it as much. It's also just incredibly offensive to assume that um, 
one, that device of saying like, no one's worried about Kavanaugh is meant to shame its reader. First of all, why would you want to alienate and shame your audience? That's not very helpful. Two, it assumes that, you know, the places that you're driving through aren't smart enough to care about Kavanaugh. They're not, you know, well-read or watching the news enough. If you asked anyone there about their opinion about Kavanaugh, it'd be a varying amount of degrees. So maybe people on the coast are in a more highly concentrated area of caring a lot, but that's not to say that people that are living in, you know, Keystone, North Dakota don't have opinions and don't care because they do, they do have opinions. So don't tell them that they don't. Yeah, that's, that's, this is exactly it. And then there's, there's more of this kind of stuff. Um, He discovers that people, uh, the conversations we overheard hewed close to local matters, People care about all politics is local. Larry Summers discovers local politics. Terrific. This is just an excellent piece. Basically, he discovers that um, that people have mixed feeling. The people in, uh, particularly in rural communities, have mixed feelings about their children moving away to take advantage of opportunities, which he apparently, and I can only assume in bad faith, uh, says is something that it had never had never occurred to him that they would have just thought that broadened opportunities for young people are a good thing. And the disadvantaged parents, holy smokes, is that a patronizing thing to say about, about rural communities? Oh, no. That disadvantaged parents would be amongst the greatest champions of that idea. But now he's discovering that parents have mixed feelings about their children moving away. I, I, that has to be bad faith. He cannot possibly have just been like, well, of course, these people are really happy that their children are going to move 500 miles away in order to get a job that, makes, that they can make a living at, right? Like, this is this is insane. And so I think there's either a combination of stupefying myopia on the part of this guy or just brazen bad faith in his articulation of his previous views and what he found. This is very, very typical of Cletus Safari. You're either not you're, you either are as dumb as you claim you were going out to discover the going out to discover America, in which case, why should we listen to you at all? Or you are operating in bad faith the whole time and are trying to sell us a bill of goods, in which case you're just a fucking con man. Also, I mean this piece just generally exhausts me for many reasons, not only because I don't enjoy the prose and I think that the point is stupid, um, but that this is just another, um, another piece in this sort of now two year cycle that we've been in of consistently relitigating the 2016 election. And I get it. I know a lot of people were surprised um, about what was going about the outcome of the election number one person that was confused right here talking right now. Um, But that if you're trying to lay the results of the 2016 election as a framework on top of what is happening in the country now, it absolutely doesn't work. Um, Not only have we all moved forward, but time also moves forward. Different things are happening. Those local conversations that these people are having have moved on to other things as have we all. So I quite frankly am really tired of this idea of, Anyone who lives in like a New York or a San Francisco sort of trying to find this secret hidden part of America, this, quite frankly, the silent majority of folks looking at them through binoculars and writing down field notes and then reporting back in the Financial Times. So can we please stop with this, please? (laughs) From a storytelling perspective, from a taxonomy perspective. Um, So yeah, let's say hello to Charlie. Hello. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, thanks for having me. Yes, Charlie, thank you, and Hook'em. Welcome to Taking Ship. All right. So tell us a little bit about... Tell us a little bit about this project. Uh, Why did you want to do this, and and how did you you get started on it? 
Yeah. So this is part of my senior thesis, which we're all required to do here, the program I'm in at the University of Texas. And I wanted to take a different spin on that. I wasn't really quite interested in spending 100 hours in a library. Um, I'm a political operative and activist in Austin. And so my perspective comes from that work and engaging with people. But of course, it all sort of happened with the 2016 election. I was living in Washington, D.C., doing a semester there in an apartment of eight people, half Republicans, half Democrats, in a space where we had to learn how to still be friends at the end of the day. And it was not easy at all. But it showed me that there was an opportunity to learn from people that I disagreed with adamantly and to talk about issues that mattered in a way that we could still get along at the end of the day. And so sort of in the aftermath of the election, and I started thinking that there was something that I had really missed. I had been involved with the Clinton campaign as a volunteer in Texas for a year and a half. I was in deep, very deep, as many of us were. Sure. And, um, you know, I think I realized I missed something. I missed something big on election night. It hit me like a ton of bricks. And that there was this whole, not that there were pockets of the country that I didn't understand or people that I didn't understand. Like, I didn't understand what was going on at all. There were places that I had no mental image of that I was hearing that would become central figures in this sort of political narrative that I couldn't conjure a picture of in my mind. I had no idea what kind of people lived there, what it looked like or anything. And so that's where the trip started and that it was a way for me to try to better understand what I had missed and using a thesis as a function to do that. But also understanding that politics has a rich tradition or should have a rich tradition maybe of talking to people it should be the basis of everything. No, what? no, no. This is, this is some, ra- this is some <laughs> radical shit that I just can't possibly get behind. It's, okay. it's a profession that is meant for a small number of professionals, <laughs> like the, you know, the, like the, the temple priests and that's it. Blasphemy. You get it. You get it. <laughs> but it really, there was a lot of it that was the sort of Obama narrative, the OFA narrative, that the best way to change people's minds is to have an actual conversation with them about the issues. And in this case, I wasn't necessarily using the specific conversation right then to change anybody's minds, but I was using it as that format to have a conversation because I think those are powerful and they make a difference. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting perspective and it shouldn't feel revolutionary to say the best way to connect with someone is to talk to them, but it kind of does, right? At the same time. Um, I actually want to go back to one thing you said a little bit earlier, just saying like, I couldn't, when you're saying I couldn't really conceive of a picture of this in my mind, there's just like whole places of this bonkers, huge country um, that I hadn't ever seen or been to and didn't even know how um, the experience was. Um, I'm actually really interested to know, weirdly from a logistics perspective, but also as you were thinking about how you wanted to craft your journey and what you wanted to discover, um, is how you selected your route um, through the country, sort of um, what what thought and what sort of questions were in your mind as you were picking the states that you wanted to go to. Um, you know, I drove across the country, mostly from a logistical perspective, from yeah. you know, New York to um, California, and we chose where we were our route basically by where we had homes to stay in. Um, So I'm interested in, you know, how you sort of selected your route and if you, um, you know, were you staying with people that you knew? Were you constantly staying 
depending on the kindness of strangers. Um, yeah. Sort of like, yeah, how is that like logistical map laid out? Yeah, so it's complicated. It's it's a good mix of all of those sort of things that you mentioned. The first kind of framing thing of it was I had places that I thought the physical places themselves affected the political conversation in an interesting way. So places like Selma, Alabama has a rich history that I think I, I would think before going, and we can get into that maybe, is that that would affect what's going on now. Or places like Des Moines, Iowa, who have such a kind of physical place within our presidential campaigns and our lexicon of politics. And so I wanted to include a lot of places like that. Um, and that's where the original sort of map of the country getting around came from. And then it was also a lot of where did I know people? Where could I stay? <laughs> where could I figure out? And also, I didn't want to drive 12 hours a day. How, how was I going to make it where it wasn't always horrible? And sometimes it was. There were some really bad ones. <laughs> um, it gets so boring. It can get really boring. Oh, my God. And everything is so flat. Yeah. The, um, I changed the – I actually changed the – schedule for the trip in the middle of it to accommodate attending a Trump rally in Fargo, North Dakota, and then had to play catch up on the back end of the rally. So went from being pretty upset after this rally to having to just spend several days solid in a car to keep oh, going. Oh God, alone was, with your thoughts. That's so dark. It was not my best place. <laughs> it was not the greatest thing I've ever done. But, um, was staying with people. I did, did a lot of Airbnbs, a lot of Airbnbs. I thought there was something interesting about the idea of staying with people also that has its own sort of kind of color to what that city was. Um, for example, and I pulled up in Birmingham, which was the first Airbnb that I stayed in. And I think it was really probably the first Airbnb and I stayed in like by myself ever, you know, too. So I was a little nervous and now pulled up, um, was in the projects of Birmingham, was definitely being run out of government housing, which I think probably is illegal. But who's to say? Who's not judge and jury? Not judge and jury, just, you know, asking some questions. And, but that, you know, that woman that I stayed with and her two young children really provided an interesting color to my experience in Birmingham. She was a person who had lived in Birmingham her whole life and didn't know the history of the 16th Street Baptist Church, where I, which is why I went to Birmingham. I went to go see the church that had been so integral in the civil rights movement. She lived there her whole life and never been. And that that's fascinating to me. So the, the act of staying with people was um, very interesting and friends of friends and family of friends. And we were, we were all in this together <laughs> to some extent. What was your, let me, this, this is sort of out with the findings of your journey, but what was your favorite stretch of road? What was your favorite drive before we get into like some of the other folks that you talked to and it's, what was your favorite drive and what was your least favorite drive? My favorite drive was Wyoming. I did. Mm. I crossed diagonally through Wyoming in one stretch. So beautiful. And I have oh. never seen, I've never seen any, I just kept calling people and being like, yo, 
It really is gorgeous. I was like, can we FaceTime while I'm driving? I was like, this seems so dangerous, but I need everyone to see this. It's amazing. I feel like Wyoming is the picture that people have in their heads when they think of the American West. You know, like it is, and it's and as they should. It's right. Awesome. It was so cool. Utah also was gorgeous. I think one of my favorite moments on the trip was driving through Utah on the kind of going south of Salt Lake City. And I was on the phone with someone and just realized I was in the middle of the salt flats. It just kind of happens. Wasn't, you know, it's in the road cuts through the middle of the salt flats. And I was like, I got to go. And uh, hung up the phone and pulled off into a rest stop. And the sun was setting on the salt flats as I was pulling in. And I did a full self-timer photo shoot in the salt flats of me and my burnt orange Jeep Wrangler. Hell yeah. <laughs> was amazing. Very like Instagram influencer. Yes. Like with a deep quote as the caption. And like, <laughs> not how did you make these? <laughs> I was like, I was there. Spanish proverb. I suction cupped my phone to a Yeti cup and stuck it in the ground. <laughs> That's yes. Wow, there, there's a lot happening in, in your suction cupping a, a, an iPhone to a Yeti cup and doing a photo shoot in a burnt orange Jeep. Like that is just extremely Texas, if I may say, sir. I'm filled with admiration for that. What was what was the what was the and let's let's spend a little. I don't, we don't need a long answer on this one because it's a little less pleasant than the previous one. But what was the grimmest stretch of road that you did? Hmm, that is an interesting question. I'm trying to remember, I feel like I blocked out a lot of the parts. <laughs> I think the uh, no, I do know what it was. The stretch between Alabama and North Carolina. Yeah. Not my favorite drive I've ever experienced. No. Also, any of the roads in Pennsylvania. They're gorgeous. The roads in or Pennsylvania are gorgeous, but a real pain in the ass. It's so expensive. Right? I, I, I had the, the, the great pleasure of doing some work in Pennsylvania this cycle. And it was, as you say, like it's beautiful, like rolling, like rolling green hills and like barns. And like, I mean, it, it's just gorgeous. And it's like, yeah, that'll be like $32 for the privilege. increments <laughs> of four. Like, yeah. every, you know, like, why is this happening? I was calling my mom and I was like, I'm running out of money. King's Highway, sir. <laughs> Anyone should be able to use it. Was that sad? Rubbish, I say. Yeah, yeah. This is this is you know, is this is this what our ancestors fought in Daddy Valley Forge for, I ask you. Uh, yeah, maybe. All right. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about let's talk a little bit about how you the, the kind of the the goals of this and the attitude that you brought to it because as we discussed in the in the intro to this and we've had a chance to chat about it a little bit as well uh, before we started recording these types of this this literary tradition and you are I know this is a senior thesis but you're part of a literary tradition of people going forth into America having experiences and writing about it right this is this is a this is a you know a a, a tried and tested form of uh, of expression and those sort of divide into two broad models. One of them is either the great American journey stroke great, stroke great American taxonomy, right? Where someone goes out into America and either they have experiences that shape them or they are trying to somehow classify what makes this giant, wildly differentiated place work as one country, which is a really, really good question. Yeah. Or they are what we've termed, what has been termed by the people, Cletus safaris. We're going to go out and we're going to view middle Americans as if they were zoo animals and we're going to report back on their strange ways. And, and the assumption within that appears to be 
it's this is an insight of of of, of mags that I think is really really sharp. Uh, it's that that literary tradition is part of a kind of uh, appropriative exploratory literary tradition where like. You know, somewhere, so you know, a, you know, someone from a colonial tradition goes into a, goes goes amongst the natives and reports back that these simple people have some kind of earthly wisdom that we metropolitan sophisticates in these modern times have lost. And it's, yeah. there's it's a tone of quite a bit of that to a lot of Cleta Safaris. I don't think you have done a Cleta Safari. I think yours is is and anyone who wants to to read this can can see this. Charlie Bonner's uh, blog is a republic if you can jeep it. Uh, but the, uh, I think you end up with something that's a little bit closer to a great American journey. What attitude did you bring in order? Did you think about Cletus Safari versus great American journey type concept? Like how did you set about doing this in a way that was, that was responsible? Yeah. And I think that, um, I sort of had the idea before that became a popular New York times expose sort thing that we saw all the time. Um, and I did keep reading them as they came out. And I was like, oh, this, this fits into what I'm doing. How can I include this? Um, and I think there is some people like them. That's the, that's the first thing to note is they wouldn't keep writing them if people didn't think they were interesting in some, to some extent, you know. And um, I go back to the beginning of Steinbeck's road trip book, Travels with Charlie, aptly named. Um, talks about him telling people that he's going on this road trip and the reactions of other people about the longing they have to do the same thing. And I experienced the exact same thing in the months leading up to going on this road trip is that people want to go. They want, they want to get in the car with you and they just want to go. And so there's, there's, I think that's an important frame to both to both kind of genres of the writing is that there is something about us that is deeply interested in going and getting on the road and seeing what there is to see. But I think where mine differed and part of it is just by nature of who I am and not, not necessarily any framing, but part of it is just generally who I am is that I'm not a reporter I wasn't working for the New York Times. I was working for me. And I come into it with all the biases I have as a democratic political operative. And that's a, that's a very different perspective on the situation than going to it from a, you know, flying in from New York to do it, you know. And there is, and I think you you recognize this in what you were saying, that there's a very zoo-like tapping on the glass aspect to what they were doing. And that wasn't, I, I wasn't interested in how foreign these people were. I was interested in how similar we were. And I think I tried to be honest as I was doing it, that this was just, as, it was just as much about me as it was about them. And even though I wasn't sharing my expertise or my opinions on what we were talking about, what they said affected me. And I had to be honest about the way that things affected me and that these conversations were difficult and some of them were upsetting. And that, you know, there are several times when I cried in that burnt orange Jeep Wrangler. And I had to be honest about that in a way that I don't think we allow most of the reporters to be I think and so it was a different it was a different take on it because it was mine 
And um, I'm constantly searching for common ground with people. I think some of that is being a Democrat in Texas. If I wasn't looking for common ground with people, I wouldn't be getting very much done. True. So I think part of that's just inherent to the nature of my work. And I bring all of that with me into the car and into every conversation that I was having. I think I... And I love that response. And I think that that's exactly right. And sort of the idea of, I wasn't so much interested in what made us different because that I feel like is the really kind of patronizing angle with a lot of these pieces. It's like, you're different from me. Why? That's not the, like, if you take that approach, it inherently sets apart the reader from the person that that's in the story to sort of set them up in this like scientific lab or zoo kind of way. It's like, Ooh, look at how different they are from me as opposed to saying like, we are in fact the same. We yeah. discover that together. Um, yes, it definitely has much more empathy and compassion, but honestly, you just don't read that other places. Yeah. And folks, yeah. you know, from the New York Times or the Financial Times ugh, um, are essentially coming down with the preconceived notion of why we're different. Um, and they're going to then write about what they already think that take actually is. Yeah. I think the best example of this for me was shockingly the Trump rally in Fargo I think there was this to what I brought to that was someone who had been to many political rallies I think a lot of the perspective that we get on these rallies are from people who are coming to politics for the first time and seeing them and being like why are all these people getting together and they are markedly different than an Obama rally obviously obviously but I've waited in line for five or six hours to go and see Obama do talk for five minutes I've absolutely done that. And so when I had to go and stand in an empty parking lot in Fargo for four hours with Trump supporters, I, I understood to a certain extent what brings someone to something like that and the feelings that you have when you are there. And the way that being in a crowd like that makes you think and makes you act And I had to ask myself seriously that if Obama took all that hope and all the cult personality that we had around him and he turned it to anger in the way that Trump does, would we have gone along with it? And I had to ask myself that. And I said, yeah, I think we probably would have. Sitting in that room, I think I would have done just about whatever he told me to do. But he didn't, you know? (laughs) <laughs> he didn't do that. That's a key difference, though. <laughs> <laughs> Very important difference. And it is, but there was something in that that I knew why they were there. And I, and I could feel that in them. And it ended up being, and that was really some of the most upsetting parts of that day for me, is that it was much less about him than it was about human nature and what brings people together and what turns them to anger towards other people, other groups of people, other races. And that's a much bigger problem than one election cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really good observation. And I think, and this is, you know, one of the the things that we've talked about on this, this podcast before, and that is the idea that, that Trump is in 2016, is a symptom, not a cause, right? Like he's give like these people came because he was giving them something that he wanted in the same way that Obama was giving us something that a lot of us really, really wanted. There certainly would have been a big chunk of Obama supporters that I think probably could have found if he had come from a place of anger, could have found that in themselves too, but he wouldn't have been, 
the kind this kind yes. of you know incredibly movement building yeah. figure right he would have been a lot more like trump trump's like trump's support is actually as we know small but incredibly energized and vocal uh, yeah. and, and i think probably probably a demagogue version of obama probably would have looked a little bit something like that yeah i agree yeah. And yeah. the assumption that, that we sort of come into with a lot of, uh, you know, one of the things that you're talking about understanding why these people were waiting in line, there's a key at, it, it, it sort of elucidated the difference between what you're doing in a, in a Cletus safari. And, and Mags, this also goes back to what you were saying, which is so often these things proceed from uh, the question seems to be on, you know, if you're the New York Times or, the, you know, the New Yorker, whoever is sending someone out into the hinterlands, the question is, why are these people so weird? Mm-hmm. And then you go back out again to discover, are they still so weird? And yeah. it just, and that really creates a very jaundiced and fractured view of people. Yeah. As opposed and to just, is, what, are they, what are they here for? How are we different is a very different question than why are you so weird? Yeah. And there was, I think in that, in their reporting, often it's let's find the most outlandish voices. Let's find, you know, the people who, are going to be the loudest in their disdain for Hillary. What is still like all those sorts of things. And I stood in one place. <laughs> I was just a person attending this rally. And so I only had access to the people that were around me. And it was getting to know those people over four hours and understanding them more fully and not, necessarily always looking for the craziest thing that they were going to say. And the, the makeup was really quite interesting because in front of me, it was two older women in their seventies who had driven a couple of hours to be there. Um, American flag, sweatshirts, MAGA hats, kind of, I would say more of a traditional image of what we would think that we would see if we attended a Trump rally in Fargo, North Dakota. And then there was a guy in his 30s, worked for the city of Fargo, voted for Obama both times and voted for Trump, came alone. His wife wouldn't come with him. And behind me was about 10 high school freshmen, all white, all there by themselves. And I had this very odd scene right where I got there that one of the moms was dropping off her daughter with these like high school boys. And it was very was the exact image you would see if she was dropping her off at the movies on like a Friday night, but it was a Trump rally and it was very disconcerting. And it was a mind just totally <laughs> the whole thing. Come back from the demagogues rally by 10 PM. <laughs> yeah. She's like, you going to look out for Susie? And I was like, I don't love this. Make good choices. Girl, this is already a bad choice. <laughs> I was like the bad choice has been made. We're all it's already too late. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so it was just this very interesting mix of people. And those three subsets of people in, I'll, I'll say voters for the high schoolers, even though I, they were not old enough to vote, but I think they allude to a type of young voter that like, they're all there for completely different reasons. And they all support him for completely different reasons. And so trying to understand that and not paint them too broadly with a brush, but also know that there's small, that's a small data set, you know, it's not, it's not that many people, but they were real conversations. Um, and I think the other part that really stood out to me about connecting with people and trying to understand them um, in Philadelphia and this really odd 
really odd interview. I'd been on a tour of Philadelphia City Hall, which is gorgeous. Highly recommend if you've never been. It's a great tour. And met up with a guy who'd been on the tour with me afterwards. And we ended up talking. It was my longest interview. We talked for an hour and a half sitting outside of City Hall. And we started talking about local issues and he talked a lot about taxes and potholes and he works in real estate. So some really specific issues there. And, you know, it was interesting to just understand that perspective of what's going on in Philadelphia. Turned to national politics, took a sharp alt-right turn. Oh dear. Sharp, sharp alt-right turn. Like your neck is broken. Just yeah. like, I was like, I've been talking to this guy for 30 minutes and what? Um, he quoted, did Mein Kampf at one point in time was like, <laughs> oh boy. no, quote, Hitler didn't invent killing the Jews, Charlie. And I was like, I don't know how I ended up here. Um, but conversely, big supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement and was deeply interested in this project and supporting me and had traveled across the country and wanted to give me all the tips he had about traveling across the country and it was this very odd thing where i had to go this is this is a nice and good man how did that middle part happen what And, and it's still one of these things that rattles my mind that how do we have good people who believe horrendous things and how do we have a politics wrapped around that how do i as a political operative approach that notion and i haven't come to any answers on that but it is one of that's one of the conversations that i go back to all the time yeah no i think that's really interesting and also a little scary like if i was sitting in that chair you know across from them i'd be like oh god can can i leave (laughs) or you know i wouldn't necessarily know what to do um but i think the the idea that now we have folks who are that alt-right or like you were saying, like have this like very intense personal ideology that's been wrapped in this political flag, I think brings up something that I wanted to ask you about kind of in a more like reflecting on your trip kind of way. Um, And uh, I think that with this, I feel like, especially with the 2016 election or with this particular ideology, I feel like there's a lot of folks that I interact with in New York who you know, rightfully or wrongfully say things like, I hate America. I am embarrassed by America. And like, they, um, they absolutely do. If you look at, you know, police brutality, you look at, um, income inequality, you look at how we're treating women. Like there's a lot to be afraid of, ashamed of. Um, and then, you know, America's footprint, uh, in the global community. Um, so I think there is definitely a lot to be concerned about. Um, and, you know, I, so I'm from, I'm from Oregon. Uh, I came from a really, really blue part um, of the country. And I think if you'd asked me in high school, you know, do you hate America or are you um, embarrassed about America? I probably would have said yes. I was a very, um, very pacifist kind of person. Um, and then, you know, I moved and I met people and I had experiences and I, you know, sort of went around, um, uh, went to the other side of the country and realized that, um, I don't hate America. And I found, you know, my own kind of patriotism, which reading then your last or like the final, um, your final post, I think what, what really hit home for me is the reminding ourselves, you say, quote, reminding ourselves 
Uh, what we love about America is essential because as President Obama often said, people who love their country can change it. And I have found myself making that argument um, to folks who now presently say that they yeah. hate America or are embarrassed by America. I'd be really interested to know then just based off of your like similar trajectory then for you, like no. not necessarily pre this trip, but even like growing up uh, or, you know, becoming a more political person like in high school or early college or whatever that was for you, sort of like how, like, have you had a similar um, trajectory? Has your perspective on that changed? And then also like how did this trip either confirm or shake that view up for you? Yeah. And I, I kind of have an interesting history with politics. I got involved in a really young age. Um, I had a civics teacher, Mrs. Kinster in seventh grade, who for whatever reason saw that I was really passionate about what was going on. It was in the midst of the 2008 election and encouraged me to start volunteering on President Obama's campaign. And I volunteered on a campaign or worked for a campaign basically every year since then, so starting at age 12. And so my understanding of politics and people associated with politics is deeply rooted in an Obama-centric notion of America. And so it's deeply rooted in hope and that's real. And the connections with people and canvassing and doing all those sorts of things, that was a very real and a personal understanding for me of how politics works. So I go back to when I woke up on the day after the election, I thought that maybe I'd been wrong and that all of us had been wrong and that the America that we had believed in wasn't there. And that was hard. That was, there were a lot of issues with that campaign. I think as political people, I think y'all understand that it wasn't just losing. It was also all your friends are unemployed the next day. It's also... Myself included. I was unemployed. That was a dark time. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. yeah. We, you know, a lot of us had jobs lined up that didn't exist the next day. And yep, yeah, <laughs> we all understand. And you know, there was that portion of it to deal with, which is hard to explain to people. There's just losing. That's hard to explain to people. But there's also the, there was the grand ideas that everything that I believed in and had devoted my life to might have been wrong. And so that was really hard. That was really difficult. And I think part of doing this trip was understanding whether I was wrong or not. Was, and maybe it was an effort to fall in love with the country again. That maybe if I could just get in there and understand it a little bit better, that I could fall in love with it again. And I think I did. And I think that one of the things that I heard often, which is kind of a complex notion, but it's interesting that you hear it from normal people, is America is the only country built on ideas. Which is true, it's profound, but you hear that from everyday people. And I wasn't political scientist or anything, but we're not built on landmass. We're not built on, you know, color or creed. We're built on ideas and ideas come from people. So we are a country built on everyday people coming together and creating these ideas that move us forward. In that, I think there is so much optimism and there is so much to love. And I think one of, the, one of the things that Hillary always got hit for was she had a line in some of her speeches where she said, America is great because America is good. 
And I think that's something that we have to think a lot more about in that there are people all over this country who believe wild and horrendous things. Some of them are good people too, in that we can create community with people that we don't agree with. And that finding goodness in people brings goodness out in other people. And that makes all of our politics better. And so I think going into this next election, that's the thing that I think about the most, that I think people needed a wake-up call. I think that's, we can all agree on that. But my hope is that it brings out the goodness in people and that we can start to think about what that means again. Yeah, that was incredibly well said. That was really beautiful. Um, Frank, are we allowed to say beautiful and heartfelt things on this show? <laughs> yeah, being sincere is, is new. It's new territory for taking ship, but I think we can. I think we can make any exceptions sorry, this one. Sorry, sorry. No, I think I think we can all use a dirt a dose of earnestness. And you know, now that Ellie's not here, I think it'll actually stick. <laughs> That's the, so. Actually, Ellie, somewhere Ellie's head is exploding. <laughs> that would have been exactly. incredibly hard on. It's like turns into like a. Like just a pile of dust. Exactly. Uh, I think that was really good, Charlie. I, I think I would actually like to leave the the interview there um, and and move into the uh, the lightning round uh, as we wrap this thing up. Perfect. Uh, so, uh, Mags, you want to kick us off? Yes, I would love to. Um, so, can you um, recommend a piece of culture to our listeners? This can be um, a book, a piece of music, a new band, movie, um, TV show literally any bit of culture that you think other people should be consuming. Yes. And this is a hot take. Give it. We're <laughs> and it's ready. not new. But Amazing. I have found the best cure for our politics and the way I feel when I come home from work is watching reruns of Nashville. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Didn't see that one come. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That is that a is spicy. hot take. I wow, you were not lying. You know what? You go turn it on and tell me I'm wrong. It was fantastic, and it's the perfect escape from our daily day. Oh, you need absolute insanity. I feel like because I agree with the like let let me watch reruns of stuff because I want to be deeply comforted by the thing that I'm watching. I think the first lightning round I ever did, um, I recommended ER. Oh, (laughs) that's right. On Hulu, and I have now watched. I've now watched enough ER that I'm basically licensed to practice medicine in the state of New York. So, <laughs> but I'm saying, I was like, I've started listening to music and being like, well, I am a music executive from Nashville. Exactly. Um, and I understand all the nuances. <laughs> like, well, as a producer. <laughs> That's perfect. Hell yeah. Get it. Hell yeah. They get it. That's great. I'm, I, I, I need, I'm going to need some time to recover from that take. You were not lying. That is, that is a hot take and I'm bound to respect it. Uh, is there a, is there a food or a drink, something you've had recently that you would like to recommend to the attention of our listeners? Ooh, that's a great question. Austin, Texas has all of the best foods. <laughs> we have a great time, but I did just go to the Texas state fair and had just the traditional famous Texas State Fair corn dog. And there are a few things better in this life than that corn dog. I can't tell you that's the last a good time take. I had a corn dog. Right? It's <laughs> a mistake on my part, honestly. That's a me problem. Yeah, that seems like a fixable one, but yeah, that's the Texas. But I'm like, I'm, but I, I prove also that this comes from the Texas State Fair. Like, food just tastes better at the State Fair. It does. That that's totally true. Reasons. Yeah. That's so true. Um, all right. Next question. What was the first CD that you bought with your own money? 
Were people well, probably something like these when you came to the embarrassing. Really? No. <laughs> no. Um, I think it's something deeply embarrassing, like a Raven Simone album. That is not embarrassing. That is yeah. good yeah. for the time. <laughs> it was my first concert, also. Oh, it was so bad. bad. It was a bad concert. Bad in like a good way or just bad in like a no, bad just a bad concert. And I'm pretty sure my dad went and was like, why am I here? It was just like, here? <laughs> That's very good. That's awesome. Raven Simone, I don't think I've ever gotten that answer before because I love asking yeah. questions, but yeah. All right. Yeah. We appreciate your reruns honesty. Nash- reruns <laughs> of Nashville, Corn Dog and Raven Simone. I mean, this is this is the best lightning round ever. Uh, in the uh, so. Lots of people are interested in doing something in in this America's dumbest timeline, the hellscape of the Trump era. Uh, what is one organization that you recommend our listeners support, and why? Ooh, I love that. Um, the organization that I keep supporting and going back to and trying to raise money for is the Trevor Project, which runs the um, LGBTQ crisis line. Um, I think with a lot of the rhetoric that we hear out of the Trump administration, um, they've had they see increased calls every time that he comes out with something else horrible. And so making sure that we're investing in those resources for people, I think, is super important. That's a fantastic recommendation. My friend works there. So hell yes to the Trevor Project. We will definitely be putting a link to that um, in the show notes. Hell yeah. That was great. Uh, Charlie, this has been a pleasure from, from top to bottom. It's featured some extremely hot takes. And for Thank that, you. we are what here for. Grateful. And, some sal- and some salient and earnest insights. And for all of it, we're extremely grateful. Thank you for joining us. Here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you, Charlie. And before you go quickly, um, where can we find your hot takes uh, on the internet or otherwise? I am on the Twitters. I'm at Charlie K. Bonner. Join me for all your Lone Star State hot takes. Perfect. We would love to. Um, so again, Charlie, thank you so much. Um, so you can follow Charlie. You can follow us at, at Taking Ship. Um, and with that, Frank, where are we headed this week? Uh, this week we take ship actually just down the Potomac uh, because we need to have a word with the president of the United States. Uh, uh, Donald Trump signed uh, recently a bill uh, called the Save Our Seas Act uh, that is designed to, well, it just does what it says on the tin. It's a continuation of a bill that was uh, originally passed in 2006, amended in 2012. He signed the most recent iteration of it. It's a bill to protect our oceans. This is exactly what we should not be doing. Does he not know there's a war on the sea? This is treason. Treason, I say, and I won't stand for it. I won't stand for it a moment longer. So we are taking a steamship down the Potomac, and by God, we're going to get this thing torn up and thrown and you know and thrown into the Potomac where it belongs. Friends, we take ship uh, to stop the Save Our Seas Act. Opposite take, but I love it. Thanks, Frank. <laughs>